Dogmatically Imperfect explores what happens to us when our reality does not match our dogma. Warning, the following is a theological reasoning that has not been endorsed by any religious organization, mainstream or otherwise. The views expressed are sure to threaten certain sectors of organized religion. Rest assured, God is not threatened by this reasoning, nor is God angry with the person expressing or hearing this reasoning. Since God has not given you a spirit of fear, do not let fear hinder or scare you who are made in the image and likeness of God from hearing. Trust the Holy Spirit to identify and highlight the thoughts in this podcast that are in agreement with God's thoughts and allow these thoughts to resonate deep within your soul. Purpose in your heart that all thoughts contrary to the example of Christ, as confirmed by the Holy Spirit in your heart, will be separated and cast aside to be burned. There we go. Okay, now we're ready to roll. Greetings. You have found Dogmatically Imperfect, one of the premier podcasts out in the ether. Thank you so much for spending your time to explore the Omega View. Last week, I ended the show with a letter that I wrote to my dad about why I wasn't attending church. And at this point, it's about 10 years ago from where we are now. At the end of today's message, I have another piece that I wrote Um, And it's not really to anybody in particular. It's just something that I had to express at the time. And uh, you might be wondering why I'm including these things that I wrote. What I'm really wanting to show is that it's taken a great deal of hardship for me to get to that place that I could even consider the things like last week's session. I mean, it was a heavy thing. Uh, I don't share these things to gain sympathy from you. If anything, I want you to see how you might feel the same as me if you were in my situation And I'm hoping that you can empathize with my journey, and in turn, you may be open to hearing these dogmatically imperfect thoughts and see how they might actually be less imperfect than what traditional Christianity has provided us over many, many generations. So I'll be reading a second piece at the end of of today's episode as well. Last session, we talked about the discarded doctrines of Jesus and the default path Uh, to eternal life that he repeatedly taught during his earthly ministry. This session, I think, is important to go over the how and why this could be part of God's original plan. It's so radically different from what traditional Christianity has taught us. One of the key reasons this seems to be foreign to us is, is that through our religious upbringing, we have this deeply rooted idea of us and them. And that's true for nearly all types of religious backgrounds. We've been taught that the difference between the us and the them is that God is always for us and against them, unless, of course, they change their mind and they become one of us, right? So each group of the us holds the same idea. It doesn't matter if if your us is evangelical or Catholic or Protestant or even the many uh, non-Christian theologies. Um, This is also the idea of identity politics, you know, right? Us, them. Even though this is relevant to the subject of the session, the politics that surround this idea are really just symptoms of the root issue, which we're going to address today. And there is an idea that says that all men are created equal and the dignity of the individual is paramount. This idea is rooted in Genesis 1.26. Let me just read it here. Uh, You don't have to turn there. I'm going to turn there real quick. Um, Genesis, first, very first book. You guys know where it's all at. Right, Genesis 1.26. It's just a quick reference. I'm in 10. 
three, one, 24, 27. Let me get these glasses on there. That is so much better. It's so sad. Anyway, uh, Genesis 1, 26. And then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Right? So, and the next verse, right? So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. Okay, so that's actually, you got a bonus verse there, right? Uh, 26 and 27. Pretty cool, right? Well, Genesis 26 and uh, 1, 26 and 27 establishes the idea that all men are created equal and is in direct opposition to the us-them mentality and affirms that indeed all of humanity is worth the div- worthy of the dignity that we are created with. We are each endowed with imago Dei, the image and likeness of God. And there's only one God. Even Paul agrees with this according to Romans 3, uh, 29 and 30. I'll just, I'll just turn and read that real quick too. And uh, by the way, just so you know, last week I was reading from my NIV. This week, in fact, I don't even know. It's the New King James Version, but I know it's the super anointed one because it's got my dad's name on it right there, Bob Marson. So I know this one is a good one. Um, so anyway, where were we at? Romans chapter 3, John, Acts, Romans, I mean 8. Let me go back some. Oh, here we go. And let me get these trusty glasses out again. At some point, I'm going to have to leave them on, uh, but not right now. So, okay, uh, Romans chapter 3, and we're going to go to verse 29. And this is Paul speaking, and he says, Or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Since there's only one God, dot, dot, dot. So I'll just give you the first part of the verse, right? Because that's really the the main uh, thing that we're talking about right now. So he's... God of the Jews, but not the Jews only, but also the Gentiles, and there's only one God. So it's the first thing that we want to talk about today, and it's an important thing, right? It's my very first shocking statement of the se- of the session, and this statement is contrary to what we've been taught, and it's not the fault of our teachers because it was taught to those who taught us, right, generationally. Okay, here's the statement. God has a relationship with the them just as much as the us. I'm going to repeat this and give you a quick second to scoff at my statement, and then we're going to look at examples of this in the biblical record. God has a relationship with the them. Yes, that them that you're thinking of, right? Whoever you think them is, God has has a relationship with them just as much as us. And this session is purely dedicated to showing in the biblical record... God's relationship with the them, both the Old and New Testament, non-covenant, non-chosen people who God also created with Imago Dei. And the first guy we're going to look at is Abimelech. If you have your Bible, uh, turn with me, unless, of course, if you're driving. Don't flip in your Bible if you're driving, right? Don't violate wisdom. Uh, but if you're not otherwise occupied, turn, turn with me to Genesis chapter 20. So right, see, let me open it up here. Genesis chapter 20, and I'm going to turn there now. Like I said, I've got my dad's uh, super anointed Bible, right? And uh, let's see, here we go. 
And we'll just start in the first verse, okay? Genesis chapter 20, we're just going to start in verse 1. And Abraham journeyed from there to the south and dwelt between Kadesh and Shur and stayed in Gerar. Now Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. So, okay, so he's when he said of his wife, he's talking to the king there. He's like, hey, check this out. This is not my wife. This is my sister, okay? And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. Okay, because... <laughs> so uh, they're all traveling through this new land and uh, because, and he, Abraham explains it later, but because she was a hot chick, right? He didn't want the king of this new land to say, hey, look, get rid of that guy so I can have her. Um, so he just said, hey, and he, and he prearranged it with Sarah and said, hey, look, just tell the guy that you're my sister because that's what I'm going to tell him because I don't want him to, and I know he's going to probably want to take you and and, you know, take you as one of his concubines or whatever. But look, I value my life, so go ahead and do that, okay? Um, so this is what he does in verse 2. Now Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she's my sister. And Abimelech, the great king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in the dream by night and said to him, Indeed, you are a dead man because the woman you have taken, uh, because of the woman you have taken, for she is a man's wife. And, he, and, and God in, in this verse doesn't even say, it's Abraham's wife, right? He said his a man's wife. Didn't matter who, didn't matter who, but she is a wife, right? But Abimelech had not come near her yet, and he said, Lord, will you slay a righteous nation also? Did he not say to me, she is my sister? And even she herself said, he's my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. And God said to him in a dream, yeah, I know that you did this in the integrity of your heart. For I also withheld you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now, therefore, restore the man's wife, for he's a prophet. That's interesting. He's a prophet, okay? And he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not restore her, know that you shall, shall surely die, and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning, called his servants. Uh, let me skip down a little bit. Abraham and, and Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us, right? How have I offended you? And, and you brought this on me and my kingdom, this great sin. Um, you've done deeds to me that ought not to be done. Then Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you have in view that you've done this thing? Like, what did you see? What did I ever do to you for you to do something so terrible to me? Right? And Abraham said, Because I thought surely the fear of God... Oh, oh, this is interesting. Okay? I want you to read, star, circle this verse. It is in verse uh, 11. Okay, I'm just making a star right now myself. And we're in chapter 20, Genesis 20, verse 11. And I want you to think, does this sound familiar to any of our dogma, right? Our religious dogma. Abraham said, because I thought, surely the fear of God is not in this place. The fear of God is not with the them, right? They will kill me on account of my wife. But indeed, she truly is my sister, and she's the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother, so she's my half-sister, right? Um, <laughs> Springer. And she became my wife. And it came to pass when God caused me to wander from my father's house that I said to her, look, this is your kindness that you should do for me in every place, wherever we go, right? This is where he set her up ahead of time. Say of me, he is my brother. Then, Ab then Abimelech took sheep, oxen, and male and female servants, and gave them to Abraham, and he restored 
his wife to him. And Abimelech said, See, my land is before you. Dwell wherever it pleases you. And then he said to Sarah, Behold, I've given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. Indeed, this vindicates you before all who are with you and before everybody. Thus she was rebuked. Okay. What a story. And as a subnote, I want you to see something in verse 7a and 11a. Um, in this account, God tells Abimelech that Abraham is a prophet, right? And then we see that the prophet was held accountable for his error and poor judgment. This is an important concept that we should not easily dismiss or forget as we move forward. But the main point of this account is the biblical record of God's relationship with a perceived them, right? Terrific. So we've established that, right? God was talking to uh, somebody that Abraham thought was a them. Okay, so next we have a guy by the name of Melchizedek. If you've been in church for a while, you know who this is. But for those of you who don't know this guy, let me read a summary of who this is. And I have it up here on my computer. Um, in the Bible, Melchizedek, um, biblical he Hebrew, Romanized, and then it's given you... Uh, pronunciations and stuff. It means king of righteousness or my king is righteousness, which is interesting because uh, there's nobody, not one. Anyway, we'll keep going. Also transliterated Melchizedek or Malchizedek was the king of Salem and priest of El Elyon, often trans translated as the most high God. Um, an interesting designation. Um, he is the first mentioned in, uh, he is first mentioned in Genesis 14, 18, 18 through 20, where he brings up bread and wine and then blesses Abraham, uh, Abram and El Elyon. Okay. So we have a lot of things here to notice that aren't the main focus of the, of the session, but I do want to highlight them. Okay. First, Abram's name has not been changed. And if we, if we want to go there, let's just go there real quick. Genesis 14, um, just so we can see it, not just read about it from um, a summary, right? Genesis chapter 14, what does it say? 18 through 20. It's a very, very short reference, okay? Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, uh, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High, and he blessed him, speaking of Abram, and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, professor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Okay, so the first thing we want to notice is Abram's name has not been changed to Abraham. So we're really early on in Abram's journey with God. And second, and this is the main point, right? Melchizedek is the high priest of El Elyon. And he's not a part of the Abrahamic line, right? Obviously, this is a pre-chosen, pre-covenant person, right? Third, El Elyon is a name of God that originates from a group of people who are not related to Abram. Yet they both recognize it's the same God that they're both referring to. Okay? And fourth, uh, Abram gave a tenth to Melchizedek. This is the initial reference to tithing, which predates the law by many centuries. And this is a golden rule concept, not a mosaic law concept. Okay? And again, the main point is, what do I mean by that golden rule concept? Um, okay, well, Abram's thinking, okay, look, here's a priest. And if priests did then what we, we don't know what the priest did back then. But the thinking would be, hey, look, 
the priest has dedicated himself to the Lord, especially in the modern times, uh, what we think about tithe, and even in, in the is, Israeli, uh, you know, the tribe of Levi, right? They were the Levites, and they didn't really own any land, so all the other tribes supported the, the priesthood, right? And this is the same thing, not according to the law, because Abram said, hey, look, this guy is dedicating himself to understand who God is, and he doesn't have land, he doesn't do all the things that we do to make money, so... As the Lord blesses me, I'm going to give a tenth of that because I know if I was in his position, I would need somebody to help me out too. So um, it's more based on a golden rule concept, not the Mosaic law, which of course comes centuries later. But again, the main point is that God has a relationship with somebody who is not part of the chosen us, right? Now I get that they're uh, thinking about the uh, tribally. Okay, anyway, let's move on. You understand what I'm saying. Next on the list is a female. Okay, her story starts in Genesis 16. Let's just flip over. Um, I'm only like one chapter over. And essentially, uh, we're going to read the whole uh, chapter. Uh, we're going to start in verse 1, and we're just going to read and see what we can see. Okay? Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, and she had an Egyptian maidservant whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, See now, the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I shall obtain children by her. And Abraham, I'm going to stop right here because I have written in my little side note. Abraham did his best Ray Romano impression. Uh, Deborah, what is it that you think I should do about this predicament? And... <laughs> Abraham, Abram heeded the voice of Sarai. Then Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, her man, handmaid, and the Egyptian, well, it's important that they keep saying it over and over, right? And gave her to her husband, Abram, to be his wife. And after Abram had dwelt 10 years in the land of Canaan. So he went into Hagar and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived... This is when she saw she had conceived. This is almost like a tongue twister, but what it, what it really means is, with, so let's break it down. And when, you know, it could go like three different ways. When she saw she conceived, it could mean when um, Sarai saw that Hagar conceived, it could mean that when Hagar saw that Hagar conceived, right, her mistress became despised in her eyes. Um her mistress, so we have to go back and see um, who the her mistress is, right? And then we have to go back, my maid, right? So my maid, when Sarah says my maid in verse 2, so her mistress would be the other way around, right? Um, despised in her eyes. Then Sarai said to Abram, my, <laughs> this is where it gets interesting, <clears throat> Sarai gets upset at Abram, right? She says, My wrong be upon you. I gave my maid into your embrace, and when she saw that she conceived, I became despised in her eyes. So there, there. <laughs> so Sarah was despised in Hagar's eyes. Psh, can't even have a kid, right? <laughs> and uh, Hagar's like rubbing in her nose in it, right? And uh, and Ray's like, I mean, uh, Abram's like, All I did was what you told me to do. This is what you told me to do. You said go in here and do this, and that's what I did. Why am I getting in trouble, right? So Abraham said to Sarai, Indeed, your maid is in your hand. Do to her as you please. And when Sarai dealt with, uh, dealt harshly with her, and when Sarai dealt harshly with Hagar, 
she fled from her presence. I mean, it's kind of like real, real housewives of Canaan, right? So we've got these two. Uh, anyway, you get it. So Hagar takes off, right? So I'm not going to stick around for this. Now the now, verse seven is when we kind of get to where we're going. Now the angel of the Lord found Hagar by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to Shur, and he said, "Hagar, Sarai's maid, where have you come from, and where are you going to?" And she said, "I'm fleeing from the pres presence of my mistress, Sarai." And the angel of the Lord said to her, "Return to your mistress and submit yourself unto her hand." And the angel of the Lord said to her. I will multiply your descendants exceedingly, so they shall not be counted for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are with child, and you shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has heard your affliction. Interesting. Um, he shall be a wild man. His hand shall be against every man, and every man's hand against him. And he shall dwell in the presence of all his brethren. Again, we're in Genesis chapter 16 right now, and now we're down to verse 13. Then she, Hagar, called the name of the Lord, who spoke to her, You are the God who sees. For she said, Have I also uh, here seen him who sees me? Therefore the well was called Bir Lahai Roy. Observe, it is between Kadesh and Bered. Right? So, verse 15, Hagar bore Abram a son and named his son whom Agar bore uh, looks okay. Read it again. So, because I had to skip to the next page up here. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram named his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Now there's only one verse left, and it says Abram was 86 year old, 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Now what we see clearly in this biblical account is that Hagar definitely had a relationship with God couple things to look at in this passage. If we look at verse 10, right? God promises to multiply the seed of Ishmael the same way that God promises Abraham, right? In verse 11, we see one of the very few times in all of biblical uh, record where God names a person. I mean, I can think of four, right? I think of Isaac, right? John the Baptist, Jesus, and the very first one, Ishmael, right? Isn't this interesting? Verse 13 shows another name for the same uh, God, right? Verse 13, I'm not going to, uh, you are the God who sees, right? She called the name of the Lord, spoke to you, are the Lord that sees. So um, it's the same God, right? Quite a few interesting common threads between different people in relationship with the same God. What is interesting is that there is a completely different view of Hagar depending on who your us is, okay? I don't really know a lot about Hagar from the viewpoint outside of Christianity, so I did something new. I asked the latest AI program, ChatGPT, to tell me about Hagar from the Islamic tradition. And here was AI's response. Let me come over here and pull it up. Okay. All right, here it is. In Islamic tradition, this is the answer that uh, AI gave me when I asked the question. In Islamic tradition, Hagar is highly regarded as a devout, a devout and faithful servant of God, as well as a loving and devoted mother. One of her most uh, compelling attributes is her unwavering faith and devotion to Allah, even in the face of great adversity. 
The story of Hagar and Ishmael's journey in the desert in which she searches for water for her son is seen as a testament to her strong faith and determination. Hagar's submission to Allah is also considered to be a major attribute as her devotion to God is said to have led her to being chosen as a wife for Abraham and the mother of Ishmael, right? Her acceptance of her difficult circumstances and her unwavering devotion to Allah, despite the challenges she faced, are seen as exemplary qualities. She is often held up as a model of faith and devotion for Muslims to emulate. In addition to her devotion to God, Hagar is also remembered for her compassion and kindness, particularly towards her son Ishmael. Her love and devotion to him, even in the face of adversity, is seen as a testament to her strength of character and her maternal instincts. For these reasons, Hagar is highly regarded and respected in the Islamic tradition, and her story continues to be a source of inspiration for many Muslims today. All right, so that is the response of AI from a different... So depending on who your us is, right, you have a different perspective, okay? So the next person shows the faithfulness of God to another person we just read about, okay? Ishmael. Let's look and see if we can find a relationship between God and Ishmael. Let's flip over. We're just going to go one chapter. and Let's look at a couple things here. Let me get out my <laughs> glasses again. I'm, I probably should leave them on, but it's it's so interesting the way this works. So, okay, where are we going to go? Okay, we're going to uh, flip over to chapter 17. Let's look, look at a couple things here. Verse 20. Okay, where am I at? Okay, and as for Ishmael, this is God speaking to... Uh, to Abraham. Okay, this is God speaking to Abraham. And as for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and, turn the page, will make him fruitful and will multiply him exceedingly. He shall beget 12 princes and I will make him a great nation. Right? And verse 25 and 26, let's see where we're at. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very same day, Abraham was circumcised and his son, Ishmael. Okay, jump ahead with me a couple chapters, chapter 21. And here, Sarah has let her son, uh, has her son Isaac, and now doesn't want Hagar, Ishmael, around anymore. Okay, look, I got what God promised me. You guys can go. I thought that was going to be the way, but clearly it wasn't. Uh, don't need you guys around anymore, right? So she tells Abraham to kick him out, and we pick it up in verse 14. Okay, so Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and putting it on her shoulder, Hagar, meaning Hagar, right? He gave it uh, He gave it, and the boy, meaning the, the skin of water. He gave the skin of water and the boy, uh, Ishmael, to Hagar and sent her away. Then she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. And the water in the skin was used up, and she placed the boy under one of the shrubs. Then she went and sat down across from him at a distance of about a bowshot, and she said to herself, Let me not see the death of the boy. So she sat opposite him and lifted her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the lad, and the angel of God... You know, now that I'm reading this right now, it almost sounds like... And I've never read this anywhere. Um, I've never heard this anywhere. But when we're talking about a 13-year-old boy here. And when you give a 13-year-old boy 
I mean, he could just walk with her, right? It almost sounds like he's unconscious, right? Or maybe was beat up or something like that. <clears throat> I can't imagine that Sarai was so uh, nice to, to kick him out without abusing them in any other way, right? I mean, it would make kind of sense if she had, hey, listen, go tune him up before you get him out of here, right? And so that they never think that they can come back, right? Yeah, if you kick him out, but you don't do anything to him, well, maybe I'll come back and maybe it won't be so bad. No, 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 no. We're going to make sure that you never come back. And it almost seems like he's unconscious, right? Because she put him underneath a shrub and walked away so she didn't have to see him die. This doesn't sound like a healthy 13-year-old, right? That is being sent off, right? So, and, and Abraham gives her the water and the boy, right? So, like, I don't know if it's on a cart or a mule or what. It doesn't really say. It doesn't even say that <clears throat> he's not capable. But you would think that a 13-year-old <coughs> boy would be more than capable of walking with his mom. But that doesn't seem to have been the case, right? And then in verse 17 here, it says, And God heard the voice of the lad. And the angel of God called to Hagar out of heaven and said to her, what ails you, Hagar? Fear not. Uh, what's going on, Hagar? What's the big deal? Are you kidding me? Lord, okay, God, okay, whatever. Uh, fear not, for God has heard the voice of the lad where he is. Arise, lift up the lad, and hold him with your hand, for I will make him a great nation. Here it is again, right? Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water, and she went and filled the skin with water and gave the lad a drink. Verse 20, so God was with the lad, and he grew and dwelt in the wilderness and became an archer. He dwelt in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. Where? From where she's from, right? So uh, Ishmael is half Egyptian, half uh, Israelite, I guess, for lack of a better term, because Israel's great-grandfather, I think it is, if you go Abraham, Isaac, uh, Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, right? So you've got is Israel... Isaac and Abraham. So, so he's a he's a he's a pre-Israelite, right? He's a he's a pre-Israelite and and half Egyptian. But uh, Hagar takes a wife for him out of Egypt. But a couple key verses, right in our script in our Christian Bible, right? Verse seventeen. Let me pull it up right here. And God heard the voice of the lad, right? And verse twenty. Come back over here, read it again, right out of our Christian Bible. So God was with the lad. Very clearly, we see that God has a relationship with someone that we consider to be the them. Right? In fact, according to my research, this is the very definite, according to our research, let me come over here, uh, because I, I looked up some more stuff, right? Jewish, Christian, and Islamic traditions consider Ishmael to be, and I didn't ask ChatGPT, this is just a regular uh, search on the internet. But uh, Jewish, Christian, and Islamic traditions consider Ishmael to be the ancestor of the Ishmaelites, right? Or Hagarines, or Arabians, the patriarch of Kedar, according to Muslim tradition in which he's regarded as an ancestor of Muhammad, Ishmael thereby founded a great nation as promised by God in the uh, Jewish and Christian Old Testament and was buried with his mother Hagar next to the 
I don't know if it's Kaaba or Kaaba in Mecca under the area demarcated by the semicircular Hijr Ismail wall. Okay, so I don't know if I said those names right. If I did not say them right, please forgive me. I've uh, not been educated in the pronunciation of these uh, terms. <clears throat> but this is the very definition of our them. And when I say our, I mean Christian, right? Of our Christian tradition and understanding of who the them is, right? Who's on the outs with God? Who's on the outs with God? It's the them, right? Whoever's not for us is like, if God is for us, who can be against us, right? So if God is for us, then you can't, if you're against us, then you're against God, right? Because God is for us. And so we have a very clear record in our own scriptures that God heard Ishmael and was with Ishmael. Not only that, God named Ishmael. Right? God promised to multiply his seed exceedingly, that it shall not be numbered for multitude. What's your point, Justin? Again, my point is that we do not have an exclusive relationship with God. God is not forsaking all others, to turn a phrase. Just because Noah's kids went their separate ways doesn't mean that God only walked with the one and not the other two. God is capable of walking with each of them. I mean, for crying out loud, God hung the galaxies in the sky. I'm pretty sure he can walk and chew gum at the same time. Our tradition has taught us that because God is on our side, God is automatically against anyone who finds themselves at odds with the way that we do things. But when your kids have a, different, a difference of opinion, do you cling to the one and reject the other? Or do you maintain your relationship with each of them? You know the answer to this. And we're, getting, we're beginning to see in the biblical record, right, that God's not different from you in that way. Why? Because we are made in the image and likeness of God. Now, let's go a little further in the timeline, right? After Abraham, after Joseph, after Moses, after David, all the way into the prophets. Let's look at how God instructed a prophet in the Israelite us camp to take the word of the Lord to the them, right? Nineveh in the book of Jonah. And let me turn there. Um, you know, it's so easy to find Jonah when you are um, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Psalms, Proverbs. It's so easy to find the them. I mean, the the books of the Bible when you just looking them up on your phone or whatever. Um, but man, it's been a long time since I had to look up uh, Jonah in the actual, you know, physical book. So it, I skipped over like three times when I was looking for it earlier. It's so funny. I mean, I did eventually find it. You know how? The way we always did way back in the day, if you can't find something, you look in your table of contents, right? So I, I remember I did the song, right? Uh, Esther, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. Uh, and then you keep going and going and going. But I forgot what they were after that. But anyway, we found the book of Jonah. And uh, I think I mentioned to you, scholars, estimate this is around 760 B.C. or B.C.E., uh, if you're in the electronic age. So um, let's see. We're going to start in verse 1. Uh, let me pull out my glasses again. I don't know why I keep taking them off, putting them off. I'm not used to this. I, I normally never wear these glasses. Um, but to read, it's kind of become necessary anymore. And this is, I think it has something to do with my faith. I think I don't have enough faith to have my glasses, I mean, my eyes work properly. I don't know. I'm trying to figure that out. Anyway, now the word of the Lord, verse 1, chapter 1 in the book of Jonah. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, 
Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. First thing, right off the bat, Nineveh is not a part of Israel. Now, I have a map here. I'm going to put it up on the screen for those of you watching on YouTube and social media. But for those of you listening on the audio-only podcast, let me see if I can describe it to you. All right, so I'm looking at Nineveh on my map, and it's located in the heart of the Assyrian Empire along the east shore of the Tigris River. Um, It is east of Israel, right? It's east of Israel and north of Babylon. I mean, you can't get a lot further away from the us, right? The us is way over here, right? Uh, (laughs) And the them is way over there, and you can't get really that much farther. And this did not sit well with Jonah. How do we know? Okay, let's continue on, right? Verse 3, we don't have to go that far. But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish, Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down to it to go with them to Tarshish. He said it like three times. From the presence of the Lord. Okay, now now I'm going to put up a different map, okay, because... This is unreal. So when you're looking at the map here, and again, if you're listening to the audio only, you have to imagine. They're, so they get on a boat. It's in the Mediterranean Sea right there in Israel. And you have to go past Greece, past Italy, past Spain. It's what's the Straits of Gibraltar. Is that what it is? It's when you go through through from the Mediterranean Sea into the Atlantic Ocean So Tarshish, according to this map, is located on the Atlantic coast, the coast of the coast of the Atlantic Ocean. I mean, Jonah was like not messing around. He didn't want to be anywhere near this idea of going to the east. He went as far west as of of the known world. I mean, he was going to fall off the edge if he believed in a flat earth, right? The (laughs) flat earth society was going to be like, this is it. As far as it goes, you're going to fall off. Okay, and, and Jonah was like, I'd rather fall off the end than go to this them over here and, and, and bring the word of the Lord to these people who are not part of us, right? Um, it's incredibly uh, dedicated, right? It's amazing. Uh, but of course, the storm came, and, and I'm going to kind of summarize a little bit down here. The storm came, uh, and the people on the boat who were also the them, right? They offloaded all their cargo to stay afloat. Even when Jonah told them it was his fault, they still didn't want to throw him overboard. A, why didn't Jonah jump himself, right? Uh, (laughs) There's all this, and he's like, just throw me overboard. Well, jump, Jonah. Maybe we're trying to make me throw you overboard, right? Why make it their responsibility? Uh, The them obeyed God better than the us, right? Think about that. They... They refused. I mean, it took a lot for them to say, okay, Jonah, we'll throw you off because um, you're telling me to, right? So, and then we're going to go all the way down. Uh, So we're down to verse 17. And the Lord prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Of course, the fish swallows Jonah and the fish beaches itself and vomited Jonah out on the dry land. So actually, the fish had a relationship with God and obeys God to its own death, right? Okay, chapter 3, again, God tells, and that's what um, chapter 2 is all about. Chapter 3, verse 1, 
The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it the message that I tell you. Now look, it goes on to explain that it's a three-day journey from where the fish threw him up uh, from there to Nineveh. But this time, Jonah makes the three-day journey in one day. Lesson learned, right? Okay, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna fool around anymore. So he gets there and he tells a story and he re- he relays the us message to the them of repentance, right? And what happens? Verse five. So the people of Nineveh believe God, proclaim a fast, and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. The people believed God, right? Now what happens? We drop down to verse ten, right? So they believe God and they do all this stuff. And so what happens? Verse 10. Then God saw their what? Their works that they turned from their evil way and God relented from the disaster that he said he would bring upon them. He did not do it. Did this make Jonah happy? I'm going to tell you what happened. Jonah's reaction was the same reaction that you had to my session one, right? (laughs) Well, I, I don't know. I think Jonah's <laughs> Jonah's uh, reaction was probably a, a little bit more unsettling than your reaction was, okay? So let's just read it. Was Jonah happy about it? Chapter 4, verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he became angry. How angry was he? He prayed to the Lord and said, Ah, Lord! Was this not what I said when I was still in my country? Man, I told you you were going to... This is what I exactly what I didn't want to have happen. We're the us. They're not the us. They're the them. Right? They're the them. And you're trying to give me the us message to the them? This ain't right, God. This is not right. I knew what was going to happen. Uh, <laughs> therefore, I fled previously to Tarshish, for I know that you are what? A gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. (coughs) Pardon me, I don't have a cough button, okay? And a lot of you were really angry with, with me after session one. And even here in this session, as I'm showing you that you don't have an inside track with God, God hears the them as much as he hears the us. God speaks to the them as much as the us. But that's not what you've been taught. So you get mad at me in the same way that God got, I mean, that Jonah got mad at God. I mean, Jonah put on a full drama tantrum. Look at verse three. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me. For it's better for me to die than to live. I mean, he's doing, uh, he's doing, uh, what's his name? Sanford and Son, right? I'm coming, Elizabeth. I'm coming, right? I'd rather die. This is what. Look at what you're doing to me, God. I'd rather die than to have the them be lumped in with the us. Uh-uh. It ain't gonna happen, God. But then God shares the Omega view with Jonah. While Jonah is sitting miffed under his little fort, and it kind of talks about this down here in the next few verses, right? God causes a gourd to grow that provides relief to Jonah. And Jonah's happy that he's got this relief, right, from the sun. And the next morning, God causes the gourd to wither and die. And Jonah was upset again. He gets all pissy, right? He's like, I'm going to faint and die, right? In verse 8, let me, let's find it. In verse 8, and it happened when the sun arose and God prepared a vehement east wind. The sun beat on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. 
he then wished death for himself again. So, I mean, he's, he's doing, he's doing the death wish again and said, it's better for me to die than to live. Right. He's like, yeah, I'm it's better off if I, if I die, than I live. Right. And then verse 10, the Lord says, right. You've had pity on the plant for which you have not labored, nor made it grow, which came up at night and perished in a night. Should I not pity, here it is, the Omega view, right? Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which are more than 120,000 people who cannot discern from their right hand and their left? Not to mention their livestock. Huh. They're sin sick, as Jesus would say, right? The them have always been just like the us. And we're getting ready to flip the script here in a way that you have never heard in your life before. And it's right out of the Bible. But before we talk about our next three people, let's spend a little more, bit more time here in the region of Nineveh. I'm going to do a little bit of a backstory, okay? Genesis 11, 31, and 32. And uh, I'll turn there. And, and you can turn there if you want to. It's not really that important uh, for you to turn there. I just, I just want to... But it, it does set... It's important for the setting that we're talking about here, okay? So let me pull up my glasses again. All right, I got them. And it's Genesis chapter 11, verse 31 and 32. And Terah took his son Abram and his grandson Lot, the son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, his, his son Abram's wife, and they went, out from, uh, they went out with them from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan, and they came to Haran and dwelt there. So the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Okay, so first thing we know, Terah is Abram's father, right? And uh, we're talking about the journey that they made. And let me prep my map here because I have another map for you guys to see. And I just want to make sure that I can uh, see it visibly as well. Okay, so there's my map. Okay, uh, so we're going from... We're going from Ur the Chaldees to, we're trying to get to the land of Canaan where Abraham is now, right? Uh, that's not really the way it worked out. In fact, when I was younger, I never knew these geography lessons would ever be this important. But this is right up there for understanding God's relationship with the them, okay? And I think, let's maybe go backwards from Abraham. Uh, from Abram. Terah, of course, was Abram's father. He was from Ur of the Chaldees, right? Now, on our map... And I'll put this, this map up so you guys can see on, uh, on the video on YouTube and such. But if you're listening on the audio only, I'm trying to give you a visual, uh, I'm trying to give you a description. So you go north, north from Ur through Babylon up to Nineveh. Then you make a left and then you go straight to Haran from there. Uh, and this is just really interesting. This region is obviously acquainted with God. I mean, there's only one, right? We talked about that already. And we see that Abram's father was headed to Canaan, just like God wanted to do for Abram. And it's easy to see that God had a relationship with Terah, right? Abram's father. And it's reasonable to think that others in the region also had a relationship with God. So it's just really, really interesting, this backstory. So now we're going to talk about a guy that you've probably never heard of. It's not anywhere in in the Bible, okay? So we're going to leave the scriptures to talk about a guy who is actually kind of important to the scriptures that you never knew about. You never knew about him. Whisper, whisper, whisper into my mic. You never heard about this guy. 
His name is Zoroaster, and he lived between 1500 and 500 BC or BCE if you're in the electronic age. So who is this guy and why is he important? The region of Nineveh is directly in the area that's considered to be where Zoroaster lived. And even though the dates are disputed of when he lived, they're really less important than the facts about the belief system that they have that closely mirrors the other Abrahamic religions. And he is one, he, he's the main prophet of a modern-day Iranian religion known, known as Zoroastrianism. I don't know how they came up with that name. Uh, from the guy, but anyway, uh, it's also a monotheist, monotheistic religion that uses different names and terms for many of the same beliefs and rituals as the Israelites. But watch how these things fit together. God saw fit to send an Israelite prophet, Jonah, to the city where Zoroaster lived, right, to call them to change their mode of behavior in alignment with the one God. It follows that this call would not have been heeded unless the god of Jonah was also the god of Zoroaster, right? Not to mention, again, we know that there's one god. I keep talking about this. But it's important. It's important for us to get this in our mind, right? Of course, the similarities in the belief systems are certainly interesting, but the greater point of interest would be the recorded God-directed interactions between the religious authorities from one group to to another. Justin, what are you saying? You're saying a lot of words, but what are you really trying to say? Look, Jonah and Nineveh is one such recorded action. But another one, Jonah and Nineveh, the Israelite going to the not, the, the us going to the them, right? But now we're going to talk about where an, a, a them came to the us, and you never picked up on it. Um, it's going to blow your mind, and it's between the Zoroastrian priests and the baby Jesus of Bethlehem, the Magi. When you study out who the Magi are, right, the three wise men, when you study who they were and where they came from, you find out that they are priests of the order of Zoroaster. And you also find out that they're from the region of Nineveh, from the east, right? This blew my mind. And when we think about it, we honor and sing about these priests of a different religion every single year. Uh, well, Justin, the Magi can be translated several different ways, and scholars disagree on whether they were a part of the Zoroastrian religion or the... Look, 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 look. It doesn't really matter, does it? Were they Israelites from the East? <laughs> no, right? So no matter how you slice it, God had a relationship with the them. And what never crosses our minds is that they were following their own prophetic writings, right? And God had a long-standing relationship with these outsiders. So much so that these three devout guys read their own God-inspired book. They knew a star was going to guide them. And they took action to follow the star. Then they finally find Jesus, right? Then the same angel of the Lord that told Mary what was going to happen appeared to these guys, right? After said, hey, look, don't go back this way because, you know, Herod really wants to kill him. So the angel of the Lord warns them, the same angel of the same Lord. Think about it. And they skipped out on Herod on their way back home. Think about how deep their existing relationship with God must have been. 
It's very important that you take a step back from the us and view humanity from God's perspective. These six examples that we found right here in your Bible, right? My dad's Bible. My dad's Bible have been hidden in plain sight to a people steeped in generations of us-them tribalism. We know from Paul that God does not differentiate between Jew and Gentile or any other form of us-them. These examples of God's connection to the them cannot be ignored. Now, I'm not telling you to embrace other religions. I'm not trying to validate other religions. I'm not even trying to discredit Christianity. I'm drawing your attention to the idea that all of humanity has developed different imperfect dogmas derived from their relationship with the same one God. And each example has its own unique dynamic in showing God's interest in the different factions of all humanity. This short study is not intended to validate the teachings of, of one sect over another. Rather, it's an attempt to shine a light on humanity from God's perspective, like that of a father who loves his many different children, who is disheartened when his children find their identity in the differences, right, rather than their same father. And when you begin to see humanity from this perspective, the Omega view, you can begin to understand what Jesus taught and start to shed the us-them mentality. Look, I know this was a lot, but it's all referenced in our very own biblical record. And because we find it there, we have to acknowledge it and determine why it's there. Remember, Abraham was a prophet and got it totally wrong when he offered his wife to the them king. But the them king also had a relationship with God and kept Abraham from making a huge mistake, right? And if Abraham could get it so very wrong, it's probable that all the other prophets and, prophets and apostles also got it wrong at some point in time. But fortunately, there is a record of one time that God became human and showed us where the dogma was misaligned. Jesus is the example of the true nature of God, and he taught us how to leave the dogma and go with the law of God written on our heart, and that we should recognize the Imago Dei in others and treat them accordingly, right? Like the Good Samaritan. Who's my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? Mr. Jesus, Mr. Son of God guy, right? Who's my neighbor? It's the one that, that treated him properly. It wasn't the one that had the same blood or the same religion. It was the one that treated him properly was his neighbor. And I know you have your whatabouts and your yabbits. And, you know, look, I want you to write them all down and put them to the side for just a few moments and consider these things found in your very own scripture. It's all right here. It was very difficult for me to unblind myself from these parts of the Bible, right? I've been trained my whole life to, to focus on very specific areas of the scripture, and I learned it well. And that's what gave me a skewed expectation of God. I'm going to read to you how my imperfect dogma affected my life. Uh, I wrote this in October of 2014. Um, this is a window into the absolute turmoil that my dogma, my dogmatic expectations put me in, right? And this was prior to the letter that I wrote to my dad. And this had to be going on internally for quite a while before I ever, I mean, 
the amount of anguish that's in here, you'll hear it in a second. But it just finally spilled out into this written account. Driven by my tears and sorrow for my daughter's condition, I gave it a title. Ignored. Ignored. It's the way I feel. Surely my maker understands me better than I understand myself. Surely the cries of my daughter carry more influence than either my faith or my failures. Faith without works has no evidence. No evidence is equal to no fruit. Acting on what you believe will produce the fruit you expect. What is the correct way to utilize faith? Have I actually done this? Is the lack of results a lack of my faith? Is there anyone whose faith can overcome my lack? The centurion whose daughter Jesus healed, his faith enabled Jesus to say the word only. The cripple that wanted money, Peter's faith healed that man. Many others Jesus told, your faith has made you whole. What constitutes having faith? At what point can we determine if we actually have the faith that we think we do? According to Paul's gospel, we are righteous or saved by grace through faith. This salvation includes healing, does it? Also, this is not dependent on any of my deeds, but on the deeds of Jesus. My faith in his deeds on my behalf and confession of his deity qualifies me to participate in the swap. It seems that the longer I live with Sarah not healed, the more I accept the situation, which I cannot consciously do. Somehow coping seems equivalent to believing that her healing will never come, which I refuse to consciously accept. It's an affront to my faith and puts me on an emotional roller coaster that seems like a struggle for my very life and the faith of my sons. How do I do this? The example I seem to be setting is that the same old religious saying, sometimes God does and sometimes he don't. And there are times when I just check out. I don't want to be around anyone. My faith seems fake because my eight-year-old daughter barely knows how to make the n sound. I can't be around new babies because it breaks my heart. I can't think about weddings because it breaks my heart. I don't want to be around people because my broken heart seems like a lack of faith. Which leads me back to the example that I'm setting for my sons. I can't type this without tears flowing. My words feel hollow, so it causes me not to speak. I feel like my words have no power because they have no fruit. Then I think about how grateful I should be that she didn't die in my arms, which I am. A part of her, though, did die and is not fully resurrected for eight years. And 15 now. There is so much that I deal with. There's no one here outside our situation to stand in faith with, and I have no one to talk to. So I wait. I wait for complete healing that I expect because Jesus made the trade. The moment Sarah begins to talk and walk, I will be complete and life can start. Even that thought seems incorrect. Life is in full effect now and to wait for a manifestation is much different than walking in it now. How does that work? She's in the second grade. 
Does faith say, put her in the regular class? I don't think that's right. We don't call things that are as though they are not. Where does the reality of a believer determine their actions? My thought process says that once Sarah's healing is manifested, I can come out of my hiding and be vindicated. My faith will be validated and thus I can move forward with my faith intact and untouchable. Everything I know and have been taught says that that's wrong. Faith acts on what is not seen. We thank God in advance. When a woman's pregnant, she makes sure the nursery is ready before the baby's born. We act on what we know is coming. If I get a wheelchair van, have I acted in violation of my faith? Have I just made provision for her to remain unhealed? When I applied for Social Security for Sarah, did I act on unbelief of her healing? Did I essentially accept money in the place of healing? When I applied for her wheelchair parking plaque, was I accepting her current state as permanent? Is there anyone who has faith to overcome these acts of unbelief? But my emotional state is affected by my current reality, and I'm right back where I started. It's exhausting. I could continue but I think it's better that I watch Mr. Miyagi teach karate. So that's what I did. I turned on the movie so I could check out. I watched the karate kid. This emotional anguish is a direct result of the expectations of my imperfect dogma. I had to reconcile it. And I'm still in the process of reconciling. I don't despise my religious dogmatic imperfections. At one point, it was <laughs> kind of hard not to, right? But I know the sincerity of this belief system. But people are flawed, and so are the dogmas that they develop. The Omega View teaches us to look at all of humanity as created in the image and likeness of God. If you have questions or comments... I've provided an email in the, in the uh, description of this video, okay? And if you're listening to an audio version of the podcast, just go to my YouTube channel, Dogmatically Imperfect, and you'll find the email there. At some point, I'm going to have a website, you know, and uh, an official email and stuff like that for you. But for now, this is the way I'm getting this message out into the ether, and I, and I have to do it now because I've been putting it off for so long. So I just have to do it, and I don't have those other things set up yet, but they're coming. Listen. Thanks for watching. And remember, do your best to see the original goodness in others the way God sees the original goodness in you. Dogmatically Imperfect with Justin Marson is a production of Original Goodness Media. Thanks to everyone who supports this podcast. If you want to become a supporter of the podcast, there are a couple ways to do that. If you want to support us financially, you can go to the website, originalgoodness.media. The other way to support the show is to share it with others directly or by leaving a review. If you have thoughts or questions that you would like to share, please send an email to yabut at originalgoodness.media. That's Y-E-A-H-B-U-T at originalgoodness.media. Make sure to search for the show on your favorite podcast and social media platforms. 
Special thanks to The Real Night Terror for our theme music. See you next time.